Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 25, Nobody Refutes My Brother But Me, Gregory of Nyssa's Against Eunomius. Billy Joel famously sang that only the good die young. Alas, that seems to be the case in church history, at least from Gregory's perspective. For Basil the Great has passed away at only 49 years of age, but his old enemy Eunomius, Bishop of Cyzicus, is still alive and kicking, and still being a big, dumb heretic. Now it falls to Gregory to take up the pen and refute an old family nemesis. But before we get started, I need to give you a quick word of clarification. Gregory actually wrote several works against Eunomius, including one against his original apology. That was actually the first work that he wrote, but that is not the work that we are covering today. You may remember from last time that Eunomius was so irritated people kept refuting his apology that he wrote an apology for his apology, and then Gregory wrote a response to that. That final response is the work that we are covering today. So some people call the work we're talking about today against Eunomius's refutation to try to keep things clear, since the original was also called against Eunomius. But since today's book is often known as against Eunomius, that's the title I'm going to stick with. So, here we go, into Against Eunomius, for the second time. But this time, it's personal. Because Eunomius hasn't just insulted the only begotten God from God. He hasn't just made a mockery of the faith. No, Eunomius has insulted the author's big brother. That's right. In Eunomius's response... He called Basil a coward and a liar, someone who would kowtow to imperial pressure and who fled from church councils that asked him to prove his orthodoxy. Gregory, deploying classic no-one-can-make-fun-of-my-brother-but-me logic, spends the first part of his work tearing down Eunomius' character. And his argument will be familiar to anyone who has had to deal with playground insults, because it is a much more erudite version of the classic line I know you are, but what am I? Because you see, it is Eunomius who is a coward. Eunomius has fled councils where his orthodoxy was questioned. Eunomius has distorted the record to shift blame away from himself. Basil stood up for his beliefs to the very emperor. So Eunomius can say what he likes, but if he's going to keep criticizing Basil, he better bring some transparent slides because there's a lot of projection going on here. Gregory isn't going to spend the whole book just defending Basil's reputation, though. In pretty short order, he gets down to the actual points of contention. Now, throughout this book, he's going to repeat a lot of Basil's arguments. I'm not going to get into that, because this is a very long book, and we've all only got one life, and you don't need to spend it listening to me repeat things. Gregory repeats Basil's argument that just because the Son and Spirit are subordinated in the divine economy doesn't mean they are subordinated in being. But he adds a couple layers of metaphysical argumentation that are quite interesting and worthy of attention, so we're going to dive straight into that. Gregory asks, what is the divine essence insofar as we can know it? 
Of course, we can't comprehend it, but insofar as we can know it, what is this divine essence? Well, for starters, it is infinitely good and infinitely simple, meaning that it has no component parts. Now, how can it be that what is infinitely good admits of degrees? Can the Son be less infinitely good than the Father, for example? Well, no, of course not. Because any lack of goodness is evil by definition. Remember, this is one of Gregory's fundamental philosophical principles. Evil is a lack of goodness. And after all, to be simple is to have no parts. So if the Father and Son are simple, the Father can't not have parts more than the Son. That's not how having parts works. So, Eunomius has two options. He can't actually call the Son and the Spirit lesser divinities. He can either call them creatures, which of course he doesn't want to do, or he can call them homoousius with the Father, equally good, equally simple, and stop being such an obnoxious heretic. Now, we have seen precisely this kind of argument before. Athanasius used it all the way back in his orations against the Arians, when he said his opponents needed to stop waffling and just decide whether Christ was God or a creature, because there were no in-between options. There was no middle ground, and they needed to stop waffling. But Athanasius mostly just asserted that. He didn't really prove it, or at least didn't go into a lot of detail. What Gregory has done is given us a very compact, simple way of making the case. Saying, hey, if we just look at the definition of some of these terms, we see that the idea of a less good God just doesn't make any sense. It's part of why he is so brilliant. It's not always that his vision is fundamentally different or even deeper than those who came before. But he can see further and with more logical clarity than most of his confreres could. But there is another reason why this equality is so important, which is human beings don't have access to the Father directly. We only experience the Spirit directly, who points us to the salvation wrought by the Son. So if the Son and Spirit aren't of the same stuff as the Father, then we can't have salvation through contact with the Divine. This is another classic Athanasian argument, the very heart of On the Incarnation. And Gregory has even another nifty trick against those pesky Eunomians. If the Son is not coterminous with the Father, in other words, if the Father existed first and then created the Son, well, then that means that the Father, and not just the Son, had a beginning. Which, of course, means that Eunomius is just shooting himself in the foot. Here's why. If the Son was begotten at a point in time, then how much time is there between the Father and the Son's origin? Well, it's either an infinite amount of time, or it's a finite amount of time between them. Now, if there's an infinite amount of time between the Father's existence and the Son's, well, then we're just being silly, because that means the Son would never have been begotten at all. You can't cross that infinite amount of time. But if it's finite, then that means we can start at the Son's point of origin and walk back in time and find the Father's origin. So Eunomius has defeated himself with his own logic. Now, for what it's worth, I don't think this particular argument quite holds up. There are ways around it. Eunomius could simply say that the Father dwells in eternity while the Son is temporal, so you can't make any comparisons between them. But Gregory's talent for creating easy-to-remember paradoxes and logical arguments is quite profound and very much on display here. Now, the arguments we've talked about so far are pretty philosophical, 
But that's not all Gregory wants to argue about. He also argues that Eunomius' position is scripturally unsound. We're not going to spend as much time on these arguments because they're mostly the same as what Basil and Athanasius have already done. Now, he does add an interesting argument about the divinity of the Holy Spirit based on Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. St. Paul, in this verse, is describing all the things that have been created through Christ, and he lists all the angels of heaven among them, but he does not mention the Holy Spirit. In other words, if Paul doesn't rank the Spirit as one of the creatures, Gregory says, well, neither should we. And of course, through Christ all things were made, so if the Spirit wasn't made by Christ, it wasn't made. It proceeded from the Father as part of the divine substance. Around this time, Gregory also does some very amusing complaining about Eunomius' vague maxims. One of Eunomius' principles when describing the Son and the Spirit is that the manner of likeness follows the manner of generation. What Eunomius is trying to say is that the ways in which the Son and Spirit are like the Father depend on the ways in which the Father generated them. Gregory will have absolutely none of this. And I quote, It is plainly impossible to say what a manner of generation can mean. Does it mean the figure of the parent, or his impulse, or his disposition? Or the time, or the place, or the completing of the embryo by conception? Or the generative receptacles? Or nothing of that kind, but something else of the things observed in generation? It is impossible to find out what he means. End quote. In other words, Gregory is saying, What are you even talking about, Eunomius? Are you talking about the bodies of the parents? Or the way the kid was born? Does its likeness to the parents depend on whether it's a natural birth or a C-section? Or do you mean the actual process of making something, like, like hammering iron on an anvil makes the iron like the hand that hammered it? You're not making any sense, Eunomius. Just stop talking, Eunomius. Gregory will also go after a common Anomian argument in this case, so common, in fact, that Gregory complains about he always has to answer this argument, how everybody brings it up like it's some kind of gotcha question that nobody's ever had an answer to. The question is thus, can he who always is be begotten? By this, Eunomius means to say that if the Son is begotten, then he has to be begotten at some time and therefore cannot have always been. The same argument that Arius made before him and Athanasius attacked. Gregory will make much the same reply as his predecessors, but with a stronger emphasis on the ways in which language use of human beings is only analogous to what happens in God. Creatures have to have a beginning when begotten because all creatures have a beginning. That's just the way creatures work. But not so with the Son. In fact, if we take the correlativity of the names Father and Son seriously, then the Son has to be coterminous with the Father by definition, because fathers aren't fathers without sons. This also sheds a little bit more light on why Gregory is so irritated with Eunomius for saying things like the manner of likeness follows the manner of generation. The generation of a divine being from another divine being is simply quite different from anything that human beings experience, and so attempting to reason from that as if it was something we could know about is a very silly thing to do indeed. Now, Gregory isn't just content to attack Eunomius' argument. He also wants to build up his own positive account of what the Trinity is. He will, again, make many of the same interpretive moves as Basil does, including appealing to the common essence of the three persons as that which allows for unity. 
In fact, Gregory argues his position is actually the only one that can plausibly claim to worship one god. For after all, Eunomius and his ilk will claim that the Father, Son, and Spirit are of three different substances. How on earth could offering worship to these three beings be monotheism? Now, although Gregory doesn't make this example, I think it would be a little bit like worshiping Zeus, a god, Hercules, a demigod, and a woodland satyr, and saying that you only worshiped one god. Now, if you say Zeus is really the only god, then sort of by a linguistic trick, it may be true, but it's still pretty disingenuous. Moreover, we see Father, Son, and Spirit as unified, and speak of them that way because Scripture speaks of them as unified. The Son is all-powerful because the Bible speaks of him as having authority over all, same as the Father. The Son is never described as impotent. So the pious thing to do is to follow Scripture's lead and describe the two as unified, as identical in power. There's also in this section a fascinating little argument that Gregory doesn't expand on, but I think is worth expanding on. Gregory points out that Christians are taught to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that baptismal formula is, of course, nothing new, and Basil reflected on it and made similar arguments. But Gregory picks up on the disagreement in number in that sentence. We are taught to baptize in the name, in other words, in one singular name, but then are given three different names. Gregory reasons from this that the true name of God, the singular name of God, is ineffable and unutterable. It simply is not something that can be known by human beings. So instead, we are given three names that signify the relationships between the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three relational terms are about as deep as we can possibly fathom into the mysteries of God. Are they the one singular name? Well, no but they point out the name of God reverently and by a sort of relational negation, essentially saying the relationships between the three is all you can know. There is no name higher or more profound available. It would be very interesting to see these links further developed and for Gregory to make a fuller study of what can and cannot be said of God and this kind of mysterious, unutterable unity between the names of the three persons that signals that unutterable one. At least that's what I'd like to see happen. But alas, Eunomius is still on his nonsense, so Gregory leaves this nugget aside to pursue his adversary further. We then get some more yelling about Eunomius's inconsistencies that replay arguments made by Athanasius and Basil. The Father and Son are both described as spirits and as holy, which should lead Eunomius to acknowledge the Holy Spirit's divinity, but he doesn't, preferring instead to waffle between sometimes describing the Spirit as a creature and sometimes as a lesser god. Gregory then hones in on those contradictions involved in Eunomius's approach. Because, just like with the Spirit, there are times that Eunomius wants to say that the Word can be called a son. In other circumstances, he rejects that term. He prefers to call the word a product or even just something begotten. Now, the reason for this is clear enough. On the one hand, Eunomius is going to have difficulty avoiding son language for the second person of the Trinity because, well, it's all over the Bible. You can barely open a gospel or an epistle without finding Jesus referred to as the Son of God. But Eunomius also doesn't want us thinking of the Son 
as the same substance of the Father. And that, Gregory argues, is where this fundamental absurdity comes from. The sons of humans are humans. The sons of goats are goats. The sons of bears are bears. The sons of red pandas are red pandas. So we should take a cue from the Bible's language and infer that the Son is, in fact, of the same substance as the Father. Eunomius's hesitation to use this clearly scriptural language is a result of his own heretical axe to grind. Gregory also gives yet another exegesis of Proverbs 8 to refute the standard Arian and Eunomian interpretive lines. Again, much of what he says is material we've already heard from Athanasius and Basil. He gives us a longer explanation of the context of Proverbs 8 and makes the case that you need to be really, really careful before you try to apply anything in this book, literally. I mean, when you read Proverbs 8 about how wisdom has built herself a house or wisdom has made a king, it's pretty clear the whole thing is densely allegorical. Wisdom isn't out building celestial houses anywhere. He also points out that wisdom cannot possibly be the pre-incarnate word because wisdom describes being made by a being who also made the lands. In other words, made the whole earth. Well, who made the whole earth? Well, the Word, of course, just like John chapter 1 says. By him all things were made. So, the wisdom that is speaking here is created by the Lord at the foundation of his works. And that's not the Son. Check and mate, proof text refuted, moving on to Eunomius' next argument. Gregory then spends a fair bit of time establishing that the Bible absolutely forbids the worship of any created thing, which means that if we worship Jesus, it is because he is uncreated and divine. Again, another argument that goes back to at least Athanasius. Gregory is repeating the argument and adding a bit more intellectual scaffolding than it had before, along with a good bit of snark against his opponents. You see, Eunomius attempted to classify divine beings into two categories, created and uncreated, obviously putting the Father into the uncreated camp, the Son and the Spirit into the created camp. And Gregory says this is kind of like classifying human beings as either humans or horses. I mean, you can do it, nobody's going to stop you, you can make up whatever categories you want, but there's going to be one category that's pretty empty. Just so with classifying divine beings into created and uncreated. Divine beings are uncreated by definition. You can't be worthy of worship if you're a created being. So there won't be any created divine beings, just as there won't be any human horses. Unless those body switch movies that I watched on the Disney Channel as a kid are real. Yeah, anyway. Next, Gregory deems it right to refute an accusation made by Eunomius. Eunomius says, okay, well, if you homoousians really think that the Son is unmade and uncreated, well, then how are you going to explain Acts chapter 2, 36? Because there, St. Peter clearly says that the Father made Jesus Lord and Christ. Ergo, his status as Lord and Christ is something earned and made. It's not an eternal aspect of his character. He was made that way at a point in time. The homoousians will reply, that the statement of Acts applies, quite simply, to Jesus' human nature, which was, of course, created on or about March 25th, 0 AD, by an act of the Holy Spirit, and that human nature grows and changes and is awarded with honors after the resurrection. But Eunomius will have absolutely none of this. He says, no, you homoousians are ashamed to admit that Christ suffered on the cross. So instead, you invent a second Christ, 
a pre-incarnate, uncreated Logos who is eternal and of the Father's substance, who doesn't have to suffer. And then you can pawn all that suffering off and all that messy materiality off on the created human being. Because you're ashamed of the idea of a God who could suffer. Now, this is a really, really interesting critique because it ties together two big themes in this time period. The first is the idea of divine impassibility. Now, this idea is that divine nature, precisely because it is divine, cannot suffer. And the reason divinity can't suffer is the same reason why you can't talk about the shape of the color blue. It's a category error. Blue by itself doesn't have a shape, just like divinity doesn't suffer. So that's one theme. Can God suffer? And if so, how much and in what way? Here's the second theme. Eunomia says that homoousians are making too much of the doctrine of impassibility, and in so doing, they introduce a two-subject Christology. Now, the division between one and two-subject Christologies is a fundamental one. You'll hear patristic scholars talk about this all the time when they talk about this period. Two-subject Christologies make a really strong distinction between the eternal, pre-incarnate Word of God and Jesus of Nazareth. In many versions of this, the two are often perceived as coming together at a point in time to sort of combine into Jesus Christ. Sort of like how the planeteers have to put all their rings together to summon Captain Planet. One subject Christologies, on the other hand, say there is only one person or one subject, that is Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God that has taken on flesh. You can think of it in literary terms. Do we have one subject of a sentence, or can there be two subjects of a sentence every time we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth walking around on earth? Now, up to this point in history, there have been both one and two subject Christologies that have been considered perfectly orthodox by the standards of their day. What Eunomius is doing is accusing the Homoousians of pushing a two-subject Christology too far. These are two really, really important themes, and Gregory has two replies to them. The first is to say that it is Eunomius who is truly ashamed of the Passion of Christ, because Eunomius says the Son cannot be equal to the Father's substance precisely because he's passable, in other words, precisely because he can suffer. And here Gregory quotes a particularly evocative passage in which Eunomius says of the crucified Christ, and I quote, Look at this beaten, humiliated man hanging on a cross and mocked by all, and then tell me that his light is the same as the Father's light. End quote. It's a very powerful passage, and one Gregory takes and runs with, because it is clearly Eunomius who is ashamed of divine suffering. Gregory, on the other hand, sees Christ's ability to suffer precisely as proof of his greatness, even proof of his divinity. So that is reply number one. Reply number two is this. Gregory is saying, I'm not offering a two-subject Christology. I'm just following what was said in John chapter one. The word became flesh. The word in the beginning is the same literary subject, the same being, the same character, who becomes flesh, but that doesn't make flesh the same thing as divinity. It's kind of like those movies in which people switch bodies with their pets. The identities are the same, but that doesn't mean the dog DNA becomes human DNA. In the same way, the Word of God can take up human flesh that remains truly human flesh. It doesn't transmute it into divine flesh without a special act of God. You might think at this point 
that Gregory is just about wrapping up his refutation of Eunomius, but he's not, because Eunomius has insulted his brother again. So Gregory goes on to say that Eunomius is lying about his big brother Basil by accusing him of saying a bunch of ridiculous things, like, like, like Eunomius thinks that Basil said that, that Jesus is just a man and nothing more. Eunomius is accusing Basil of, of not worshiping Jesus at all. And that's ridiculous. I studied with Basil. Basil never said anything like that. So fired up by Eunomius's rudeness, Gregory turns up his own snark factor. For now, he must answer the same argument that Eunomius has made against Basil. That if different things have different names, it's because they have different substances. So if we call the son generate and the father ungenerate, they must have different substances, just like water and fire, air and earth, heat and cold are all different things. Gregory's reaction is, mm, chef's kiss. But, but I, I need to let you hear it yourself. So here we go, and I quote, Who would not be dismayed at the irresistible power of attack? The argument transcends the promise. The experience is more terrible than the threat. I will come, he says, to my stronger argument. What is it? That as the differences of properties are recognized by those names which signify the special attributes, we must, of course, he says, allow that differences of essence are also expressed by divergences of names. What then are these appellations of essences by which we learn the divergence of nature between the Father and the Son? He talks of fire and water, air and earth, cold and heat, black and white, triangle and circle. Ugh, his illustrations have won him the day. His argument carries all before it. I cannot contradict the statement that those names which are entirely incommunicable indicate difference of natures. But our man of keen and quick-sighted intellect has just missed seeing these points. That in this case, the Father is God, and the Son is God. That just and incorruptible, and all those names which belong to the divine nature, are used equally of the Father and of the Son. And thus, if the divergent character of appellations indicates difference of natures, the community of names will surely show the common character of the essence. End quote. In other words, he's saying, hey, buddy, good job telling everyone that fire and water are different. Real big revelation there. Glad you cleared that up. But if you didn't notice, the Father and the Son are called the same names, like, all the time like all the time in the Bible, which suggests that they have the same substance, not a different one. The only one to call the son generated and the father ungenerated is you. That name's not in the Bible. Plus, we can't know the actual name of the divine nature. It's beyond our comprehension. So, of course, we believe the son was generated and the father wasn't, but that's not a name in the way that you claim, and that fact tells us nothing about what they are because that's unknowable. We can't logically deduce that one divine person is of greater substance than another. We should just stick to the biblical witness and the names that we have been given in sacred scripture. This difference between God's nature and ours is also a key rejoinder to one of Eunomius' famous paradoxes, which is this. Did the Father generate the Son willingly or unwillingly? Now, if you say the Father did it unwillingly, well, that seems kind of wrong. I mean, nobody can put a gun to the father's head and force him to make a son. What could be powerful enough to force God to do anything? But on the other hand, if the father first willed and then generated the son, then there was a time when the son was not. 
that moment when the father willed to do something, but hadn't done it yet. The father's there, the son's not yet. So that's the paradox. But Gregory exclaims, not so fast, because there is a difference between divine willing and human willing. We humans, being material creatures, have to do something about our desires in order to actualize them. We have to put our plans into motion. We have to exert willpower. The phrase that Gregory uses is rather amusing in English. My translation has it that we don't immediately get what we want due to our heavy and inert nature, which makes it sound like Gregory is selling us some kind of spiritual boot camp class to get ourselves into shape. God, on the other hand, accomplishes something precisely by willing it. The willing is the doing. I mean, we see this in creation. God just says, let there be light, and boom, there's light. No need for shaping things. No need for going through intermediaries. No need for having to go to the gym to get your bench press up so you can hold up the world you're about to make. Nope. Just so with the Son. The Father eternally and instantaneously wills the Son, and boom, there the Son is. Just as natural as a fire emits light, God always gets what God wants just by wanting it. That's the nature of divine willing. Which means The Road to Nicaea is brought to you by Divine Fitness. For some people, being elite isn't enough. Greatness is just the approval of the mediocre crowd. Fitness is only enough if you're instantaneously fit. So get to it. Get moving. Actually, don't get moving. No more waiting around on your body for things to happen. 400 meter sprint in 10 seconds? 10 seconds too many. And now, with our unique Divine Willing pre-workout supplement, you can take your performance to supernatural levels. Do anything instantaneously. Bench press? Done. Squats? Done. Ironman competition? Boom. Wield it? Run it? Done it. Divine Willing is better than any supplement. Divine Willing. Because where there's a will, you don't need any way. That brings us to the final bits of Against Eunomius. These mostly repeat earlier contentions that we've already seen. This repetition is one of the interesting bits of rhetorical structure in the book, and it's a good reminder from us of how differently ancient books were read and written as opposed to modern books. First of all, you need to know that literally everybody in this time read aloud. It was considered an extremely rare thing, and often a mark of eccentric genius, to read silently. Books were often read over the course of multiple days, because when you read aloud, you tend to read more slowly. So this kind of repetition that Gregory is doing might drive the modern reader crazy, but it was part of the ancient reader's bread and butter. It reminded you of what the author had already said yesterday or the day before. Also, Gregory appears in this book to be quoting Eunomius line by line and refuting him. So it may be that Gregory is simply following his opponent's repetitive structure rather than creating it on his own. But this constant use of repetition also becomes a kind of meditation on the primary argument. Like each time you turn it around a little bit, looking at every single one of its facets like it's some kind of precious diamond. Or, in the case of Eunomius's book, like some giant lump of coal that St. Nicholas dumped on his doorstep for being such a naughty, naughty heretic. Because Gregory tells us over and over again in this section just how scandalous Eunomius' arguments are. I will spare you the details, because unlike ancient texts, I do not want it to take you multiple days to finish this episode. But I do want to point out a couple of interesting details in the argument here. We return again to the theme of God's unknowability. 
Eunomius is well aware that the Cappadocians are going to say the nature of God is unknowable, and he has a reply to this. Eunomius says, well, if that's true, if the nature of the Father really is unknowable, then why did Jesus say, I am the gate, whoever enters by me will be saved and come in and go out and find pasture? That's from John chapter 10, verse 9, for those of you still keeping score at home. Now, if Jesus is the gate, Eunomius says, it would be pretty sad if nobody ever walked through that gate to find the Father's essence on the other side. To which Gregory replies, where in the blessed text does it ever say that Jesus is the gateway to a complete understanding of the Father's essence? No, what Jesus says here is that you will be saved. Salvation doesn't require perfect understanding of the Father's nature. So you'd best check these allegories a bit, Eunomius, unless you think that grass that grows on the ground is some kind of allegory for the essence of God. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Or at least before you wreck yourself any further. Gregory thinks he's pretty wrecked already. Now what I find interesting about this argument is that here we have two authors debating a matter of philosophical theology using biblical interpretation. It's pretty common to hear people say that in this time period, everybody is just rationalizing with abstract philosophy instead of paying attention to the God of the Bible. But here, we find two people doing the exact opposite. Gregory doesn't sit down and say, well, God must be unknowable because I'm a Neoplatonist and my philosophical system says that God is unknowable, so I'm just going to interpret all my scriptures with that in mind. No, Gregory and Eunomius are both saying the question of God's knowability stands or falls with what the scriptures say about the matter. Their philosophical training influences how they interpret the sacred texts, just as our literary educations interpret how we read the Bible. But I think it's entirely unfair to dismiss either of these two as mere philosophers with no real interest in scripture. Nothing could be further from the truth. Fidelity to Christian scripture runs throughout this entire controversy, even to the very end. For at the very end of the book, Gregory reminds us, as Basil did before him, that Eunomius' favored language for God is not scriptural at all. Nowhere is the father called the ungenerate, and nowhere is the son called something generate. Of course, we've heard that from Basil as well. But Gregory goes further. Gregory has an origin story. Because you know where those terms are found? Huh? You know who else uses Eunomius' language? Egyptian pagan religion. Gregory's heard a little rumor that they often call their gods ungenerate. So maybe Eunomius has gotten a little too fond of his comparative religion class and is trying to import pagan terminology into Christianity. Now, the kind of origin story that Gregory is giving here is actually pretty common in the period. Writers often want to establish a kind of genealogy of heresies that links all heretics across time together somehow. That's why throughout this period, pro-Nicene writers have been comparing their opponents to Marcion or some other notorious heretic of yore, while the anti-Nicene writers have been calling everybody else a modalist. Our writers see themselves as involved in a spiritual struggle for the soul of the church, Given that the forces of evil are arrayed against their position, you can imagine how they might come to think all their enemies are merely branches of the same contentious root. And with that, we have covered the better part of Against Eunomius. The last Against Eunomius we shall have an opportunity to cover. What have we learned in this refutation redux? 
as Basil's brilliant brother took up his polemical banner against the old adversary. Well, we've learned that Gregory's basic theological moves are pretty much in sync with Basil's. In fact, he often refers to his brother in this book as our master or our father, indicating his own fidelity. But Gregory is not so awe-stricken as to think his brother could do no wrong. One of the things that fascinates me about this book, and about Gregory, is that he is so good at pointing out the different presuppositions and assumptions that each side is bringing to the table. Gregory is not the first one to insist that the distinction between creator and creature is absolute. He's not the first one to say that the Anomian attempt to place the sun in a middle ground is doomed. Basil made the same claim, so did Athanasius. But Gregory is the first to argue for the claim with a simple series of logical arguments that should have a chance of convincing somebody who wasn't convinced already. He is, in other words, the first to really argue for that position instead of asserting it. I know some scholars of Athanasius and Basil might disagree with me here, but I really do think that the level of logical clarity and rigor that Gregory brings is something we have not seen before in the text of the period. Gregory also improves on Basil's account of how we come to know God. Basil, you will remember, said that our conceptions could give us some knowledge of God. That was in opposition to Eunomius, who wanted to deny that conceptions were appropriate for praising God at all, and that we just needed to praise God as he is. Gregory takes up this point, but he doesn't just assert Basil's side. Throughout this whole work, there is a comprehensive, systematic account of how human beings come to know things. Since God's essence is not comprehensible, whatever limited knowledge we can have of it depends upon divine initiative. God must reveal God's self to us before we can know anything. Eunomius' strategy of just saying, well, the Father is ungenerate, and so I can reason things X, Y, and Z about him, that's not going to work. That's not a revealed scriptural term. And yet, just because God has to take the initiative doesn't mean we're left totally in the dark. The appropriately receptive mind can indeed come to genuine knowledge of God precisely by very careful reflection upon what God has said. It's also worth noticing that this theory of knowledge resembles the story of the Incarnation. Just as we can't save ourselves, we have to rely on Christ becoming incarnate to save us. Just so, in order to know God and speak to God, we must first wait for God to speak to us. And the clarity that Gregory brings to his approach extends to biblical interpretation as well. Gregory is not the first to make distinctions between the human and divine natures of Christ. He is not the first to realize that sometimes the Bible talks about Jesus as a human, and sometimes as a divine being. That insight goes back, well, pretty much to the beginning of Christianity, but Gregory applies those exegetical principles with, I think, a bit more logical clarity and rigor than most of his predecessors could muster. Now, there are a lot of advantages to this very careful, very logical approach. But consider there is also a disadvantage. It's long. And kind of boring. I mean, look at how long this episode has run. Look at it! We're already at the 40-minute mark. Ugh! Against Eunomius was 12 whole books long. That's four times what Basil said. Basil only had three books, three nice little books for three people of the Trinity. And given the lack of a good modern translation, let your humble podcast author state, for the record, 
slogging through page after page of a translation from the 1800s was a labor of love for y'all. So if old Gregory is going to be a church father, he needs to learn to get to the point a little bit quicker. And he will. Next time, we're going to examine his much, much shorter Letter to Ablabius, famously known under the title On Not Three Gods. It promises to answer a question that still confounds Trinitarians to this day. How is it that we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet worship but one God? Tune in next time to hear the answer on what promises to be a speedier journey than our current rhetorical traffic jam along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.